Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Daniela Barron, who is a senior staff engineer, speaker, and blogger, joins us today from Toronto, Canada. Daniela Barron, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Well, a few things. Firstly, it should be easy for new people to join and get the project running on their laptops just by following the README. Another thing is that well-maintained software will have conventions in place for what kind of code goes where, which makes it straightforward for new people joining to figure out how to add new features. Also, there's always less obvious aspects of the system, such as how do you integrate with third parties? What third parties are we using? How do you deploy to the test environment or staging? These things should be documented and the documents are maintained so that things actually work when you try to follow them. There should also be uh, good test coverage so developers can be confident that they're not causing regressions as they add new features or fix bugs. I also think there should be traceability from code to the business requirements and the PR that introduced that code. So a developer who's not familiar with a certain area of the code can look at any line in the project and get answers to questions like, why is this here? Or how did this ever work? There should also be a linter in place with a decent set of opinions on code formatting and style. This is to avoid common errors and avoid bike shedding in PRs. Given that there is a team maintaining the software, another thing that makes it well-maintained is if tasks are intentionally rotated across team members. Uh, What this will do is it will spread the knowledge about the application and avoid having one area of the application that's only well understood by one person. That's interesting. A couple of things you brought up there. Well, first of all, I think that the, the topic around traceability from code to like the business need or request and can you describe what that would, what, how you've seen that kind of take place? Is that like, am I making an assumption you're maybe looking at like get blame comments? How do you think about that? Oh yeah, get blame is uh, definitely involved in that. So uh, how we were doing this at the last place I worked, it starts with every requirement, like for a new feature or bug fix, will be logged in a ticketing system. We were using Jira, but whatever ticket system you use, it, it doesn't matter. It's going to have a ticket number. So when a developer picks up that ticket for work, they would create a branch that has that ticket number in the name of the branch. And then every time they commit, they would also include that ticket number with a useful commit message <laughs> describing what, what they've done. At some point, they're going to have to submit a PR for that work. And what you need for full traceability, you need the ticketing system also connected to wherever you're hosting the code. So we were using GitHub, so we had Jira GitHub integration. So that way, the ticketing system has a link to the PR, and then all the commit messages have a link to the ticket number. And in the PR, the developer includes some more technical 
context. So you have business context in the, the ticket, you have the technical context in the PR. We also would include instructions for the reviewer. Hey, here's how you can check out this branch and actually exercise all the things I changed. Then that PR gets merged. And let's say six months later, someone's going to be looking at a line of code wondering, like maybe there's a bug and they're like, how does this even work? So they can run a git blame and see the ticket number and the commit message. And then they can go to the ticketing system and go, okay, what was the business requirements that necessitated adding this? And then from there, they can find the PR and say, okay, how do I exercise this? Uh, what tests were added for this? So that's what I mean by traceability is that any line of code, you can get full context and you don't have to have been there during the original feature development to get that understanding. Yeah, thanks for kind of like helping map out that process there. It's it's similar to how we work with our clients here at my company where we're very opinionated that every comp commit needs to have the Jira ticket number. We also track our time, which has the ticket number associated to it, which we have this whole, you know, things that we can connect, whether we're using Bitbucket or GitHub to for different depending on the projects we're working on. But it's an interesting thing of being able to go back in time and see why something's the way it is. Actually, just before uh, we hopped on this conversation, actually one of our developers was asking a question about something. Nobody had responded to them in 20 minutes. And they and they were like, oh, I found this ticket from a former employee that they wrote like five years ago. And here's what the situation was and why this was here. Never mind, I answered it myself. They were able to like go back through that process and and lean on that stuff, which is great when you have a wealth of history. Do you ever find that it's challenging for companies to consider like migrating from Jira to something else? Because then where does that context then go? Have you seen that work well? I haven't experienced a ticket migration system personally, but I, I do know where I was working before. They were using something older. I don't know the name of it. And they did migrate to Jira and the history got lost. So unfortunately, sometimes we would do a git blame. And there was some kind of ticket number, but it's from the old system. And unfortunately, that was gone. It, it would be nice if there was some kind of open standards for these ticketing systems so that it was more portable. Maybe such a standard exists, but if there is, I don't know of it. <laughs> no. We, I remember we had to do a couple, we had a couple projects where we were helping a client move from one thing that was no longer going to be supported to we were using going to start using Jira or something. And we we're like, what can we do to like archive this old ticketing, all the comments and everything happening? So we ended up building like a little web scraper to like log in and like save every HTML page into like a big folder. So we're like, here's one for every ticket that we had in this old system. So that was one way we were able to kind of like somewhat accomplish being able to have some history of something and just there's your convention, I suppose, maybe just a generic HTML page with, with everything broken looking, but at least it had the text. Another thing you had mentioned you know, in PRs could lead to bike shedding. And I'm actually not that familiar with that term. So what, what, what is bike shedding? Uh, it refers to spending time on trivial things. I might get the history of this wrong. There, There is a Wikipedia page on bike shedding, but I think the history comes from the ideas. There's an architecture diagram for a new nuclear facility that's going to be built in a town. And then they also want like a little bike shed. So employees that are biking to work have somewhere to leave their bikes. And the diagram for the nuclear facility is kind of complicated and most people don't really understand it, but everyone understands like the bike shed, like what should it be made of? How big is it? So people end up spending time arguing about what the bike shed should look like instead of the real 
potentially troublesome part, which is the, the nuclear facility. So the idea with how this applies in uh, PRs is if you don't have a linter, let's say on JavaScript, some people like to put semicolon, some people don't. And I don't want to suggest which is the right way. Everyone has an opinion. But if you don't set a standard for that and, and an automated tool that will apply that one way or another, every time someone submits a PR, some people are going to have it, some people not. And then you're going to spend time arguing over the trivial details rather than the actual substance of the of the PR. I'll, I'll include links to the, the Wikipedia page for that in the show notes for everybody. And after I go wander around and curious about that, having, you know, I, I know that there's a, another podcast called The Bike Shed um, by the folks over at ThoughtBot, and I hadn't really thought that much about like, where the name came from. So that's interesting. Do you use the, the metaphor technical debt often in your day-to-day work? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, it, it kind of, I've worked a lot with legacy code, so it's kind of just accepted that it's there. I guess there was a time years ago when you maybe had to argue or beg for time from business people to spend some time dealing with that. And there's an analogy of how it's similar to financial debt. You need to take some on, but you, if you have too much, you're going to drown and you need to start paying it off. I guess at the last place I worked, it was we didn't have to argue about it. It was accepted that it's there. It was a over 10-year-old app and we knew we had tech debt and we we did come up with a process to deal with it bit by bit. Do you feel like your understanding or perception of what technical debt is has changed over your career? Do you feel like you have a much different take on what it is or you might have mislabeled it earlier on in your career? I think recently I've, I maybe have expanded the term to take on more things as we found things that broke on the app. I used to think of it only in terms of the code, like, oh, this method is too long or the branch complexity is, is too high. It's hard to understand what it's doing. We, we should split this up or there's no tests for this. So I can't split it up because I don't know, <laughs> maybe I'm going to break something. But at the last place I worked, we had, like we were using GitHub Actions for our CI CD pipeline. And that is great if your code is hosted on GitHub because you don't have to give a th- another third-party CI system access to your source. But GitHub is quite aggressive about deprecating APIs that are used in there, and they'll put a date on it. Like, if you don't upgrade this thing, this is going to stop working on this date, which if that's your build pipeline, that's a kind of a big deal. You, you literally won't be able to deploy if, if that breaks. So I expanded the definition of tech debt and maintenance work to pay attention to those deprecation warnings, because it's so easy to ignore the warnings because things keep working until one day they don't. And so we started logging tickets to to deal with that. Oh, you we have to deal with this by this date, so we should probably start uh, a little bit earlier. No, that, that's that's a good point. It's It's been a, I feel like for a long time, a lot of service, like third-party services that we would lean on for, you know, software development tools. GitHub is exa- a good example of that using deployment you know, infrastructures like Heroku or something. I think as they've evolved their business, they can't keep supporting things for a super long time because it's it's interesting because they're probably they're trying to deal with their own technical debt. And as a byproduct, you have to then you're taking on you end up having technical debt or if 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 it's falling under that. But there's maintenance work because they no longer can keep supporting older things, and so you have to then also follow along with that process. So you have to kind of keep up with 
whoever you're working with. And if you're working with some, maybe it may be an interesting thing is like, if you're working with a third party service, I hadn't really thought about this, but, and you're not getting those sort of notifications that you're needing to update some things. And that might, could mean that they're just being, maybe they're really good at being able to do, you know, support things for a really, really long time, but they might not be advancing their tool sets necessarily very quickly either. And that could potentially be problematic for you down the road. I don't know. You get those warnings where this is going to happen by this date. And for many, many years, when that stuff's off like a year from now, you're like, well, we have a year to figure that out. But if you don't put that in a ticket and so no, one, no one's responsible for it, then it's all of a sudden the last few weeks before it's going to happen. And you're like, what do we do? So with that type of work, is it just a matter of getting into like an upcoming sprint or like how does that work well with like making sure that the, if the product team is like pushing for new features or new in- updates for the users, but you have this kind of behind the scenes work that needs to happen. How, how have you been able to help advocate for take addressing that and prioritizing that? Uh, well, what I found works well for that, um, where I was working, we, we didn't really use sprints or scrum Although we had experimented with that, we found more of a flow approach makes more sense. And it was a, a small team and just giving people autonomy. So the way we would manage the tech debt would be whenever anyone would find something that needed to be dealt with, but not necessarily as part of the ticket they're working on, like you don't want to scope creep that. So we'd enter it into the ticketing system and put a maintenance tag on it. And then as a team, we agreed that for every roughly three feature tickets that a developer picks up, the fourth thing they pick up should be a maintenance ticket, which works out to approximately 25% of time spent on maintenance. And then it would just get done. Like So, so what we did is we, we agreed with the team and the, the PM is, is part of the team. Not only did we agree, we also documented that in our dev process. So then things just get done and you don't need to like beg for time or renegotiate every time when you want to do something. It's just a natural part of the development process. We'll be back with our interview with Danielle in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, interesting, amusing, maddening, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers saying, this show pissed me off, or this show was amazing. Or maybe write a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. It helps. It helps get the word out, helps more people interested, and helps me recruit new interesting guests. Also, do you know someone that you think I should have on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Daniela Barron. One of the other topics I was looking forward to speaking with you about is documentation, in particular engineering docs. One of the reasons I reached out to you was because you had written this lengthy article about documentation, which I shared with our team, and there was some interesting back and forth between the team. And what do you believe makes for good documentation? Like, what's what's valuable to document? I think the non-obvious aspects of the system. Um, you know, people say, oh, well, if you write clean code, you don't need comments because it's it's obvious what the code is doing, which is true. But there can be a, a why aspect of it or things like how to get the project set up on your laptop. When, when a new person starts, it's valuable to have them up and running as soon as possible. And if 
the setup instructions are out of date and they're getting all kinds of errors or they're install they end up installing the wrong versions of something it's going to take that much more time to uninstall and get the right versions or maybe they have to get on a call with a new with someone else and that takes time time away from someone else on the team so definitely set up instructions there's also things like you might have different environments uh, before you want to submit a PR maybe you want to deploy your feature branch to the dev environment and see how it works in a real in environment so how do you do that um, maybe you need to seed some test data in the dev database in order to test your feature branch okay how do I get the credentials can I connect to that from my laptop uh, who, who do I need to, do I need to file a ticket to get requests like depending on how much security and procedures you you have around that so all of these things like even if your code is, is perfectly clean and you have no tech debt like it's still not going to be obvious how, how to do those things so uh, yeah I think those sort of things should are, are useful to document earlier you mentioned like interacting with say third-party services that your application because sometimes when you have like the thing that happens behind the scenes, like something happens in your application and then behind the scenes, maybe there's a job that interacts with the third party service, sends some data back and forth. Sometimes that can be feel a little weird about how do you go in there and like debug that situation when you don't have necessarily data to work with, or maybe even the third party service doesn't necessarily have like a development API that you can maybe integrate with and get, you know, see data back and forth to them because you're potentially needing to interact with what are, what are some good examples that you've seen on how to approach that? Yeah, uh, one task I had. So on an application I was working on, we were using uh, Mandrel to send uh, transactional emails. I had to change one of them. There was some new information that had to go out um, in one of the emails. That works in production, but it's like, okay, I'm I'm here on my laptop. I, I don't want to test in production. So how do I how do I even is it even possible like to to send an email or, or Maybe I don't actually want to send out it, a real email. I'd like to kind of see what it would look like without sending it. I guess I need an API key or some kind of credentials. And so none of that was obvious how to do that. Like even where in the code is, is this configured? How would you go about doing that from your laptop? So I had to uh, look into that. And it turns out Mandrel does have a notion of a test key, which if you're using that, they will generate the email and display it in their dashboard. There's a dashboard you can log into if you have credentials, of course, but they won't actually send out the email. So that's how you go about testing it. So you do need to, depending on how your application is configured, you, you need to know how to get this key and where to configure it. So I figured out a, a lot of that and with conversations with people who had been on the team longer and knew how different parts of it worked, but it had never all been written down. So as part of my work to make the change to the Mandrel template, what I also did was I introduced a docs directory in the project and I introduced a, a new markdown file called working with Mandrel. And I explained, you know, what we're using Mandrel for how you get the credentials, basically everything that I had learned about how you can work with it. And then I created a further reading section in the main project's readme with a link to this doc working with Mandrel. And now the docs are markdown files within the project, which means they can come along in your PR. So they they live in, in the code, they're, they're part of the code. So after that got merged, 
now we had an example. So the next time another developer uh, set up an integration, I think it was with reCAPTCHA or something, he had an example to follow and say, oh, add a working with reCAPTCHA and say, oh, how, how do you do it in dev mode? Oh, you can do it in test mode where it will pass because you want your test to pass. There, there's all kinds of things like that. So gradually, as we either added new integrations or made changes to existing ones, everyone could start adding those kind of docs. And we gradually improved the, the docs. And what I like about that approach is it's not like there's just one person that's the documentation person. You kind of, it, it's everyone's responsibility and everyone can take ownership of any doc and add it or add a new one or maintain it. What do you believe teams struggle with their documentation efforts? I think sometimes I'm curious where if it's like, if it's the team that owns it, then does anyone own it? And it's this kind of like interesting thing, like, well, who speaks up and, you know, plants the flag? Does that need to happen? Or what do you think contributes to why teams just struggle with, with this sort of stuff? Well, some things I've seen, it, let's say if someone's not comfortable with their writing skills, like uh, English grammar, spelling, things like that. Some people just, it's not their comfort zone. It's certainly not something that's taught. I don't recall in any programming education I've received, like doing documentation as part of that. So, and I think the way to mitigate that is to make it clear across the team, like, look, the grammar and spelling doesn't matter. A doc can be a, a list of bullet points about how to do something. You're not going for perfect prose and trying to make a best-selling novel here. It, it just needs to be understandable. I've heard the argument, oh, well, we don't have time. That's the same argument I've seen for, oh, we, we don't have time to write tests. We're in a hurry. We have a deadline. The thing about that is not having time to write docs means you're, you have plenty of time to get interruptions later because no one's going to know, understand this thing you built. So every time someone else needs to work on it, they're going to have to interrupt the person that did it originally. So that can be a, a trade-off of you know short-term versus long-term. That resonates with my experience over the years. I think one of the, it's interesting because like the documentation thing, it's like there are times when things are clearly documented and still you may get interrupted as a developer by a peer on your team being like, hey, do you know how to do that? I'm like, oh, and you can point out that's in the documentation. And like, did you go look there first? One of the things that I've tried to do when I'm sharing like what I'm pairing with like a junior developer on something if they have a question about something and I'm like well I don't know the answer but like let's go look at our documentation first just to see if this might be documented you know 50 50 chance that it had been in the past but we can at least be like I can encourage like we should probably go look around before we start going to Google first you know like maybe we can search our Jira maybe we can search these other places where information lives like an error message, like maybe we should search Slack, maybe because maybe someone talked about this three years ago when someone else had this problem before. So there's a lot of different places that, you know, these details can start to pop up to help answer questions about how to do something within an application. But I like this idea of, you know, having some documentation in the in your repository for specific third-party services. I think that's a really good example of something where it's not super obvious because it's outside of your where outside of what your team controls and owns in terms of like you're interacting with and relying on another service. Some people might know have have experience working with APIs and so great, but it's just like, well, how do we debug and how do we do testing on this stuff? How do we 
how can we test this stuff locally so that we know how to you know repurpose or redo this thing? And sometimes you'd mentioned earlier that maybe in a PR you might have reproduction process steps. But it sounds like you could also be like, and we've also included this information in the readme, or point to the you know the new documentation that you've added, being like, here's the instructions on how to interact with Mandrill going forward, and we can take that. You meant, you also mentioned that like a lot of teams might say that they don't have enough time for testing or documentation. Sometimes I wonder if the underlying problem is that a lot of teams just haven't seen it done well. So they don't have time. So it's more of a question. I don't have time to to draft up something that might not be optimal for the team and to plant that initial flag because I I haven't seen it practiced well elsewhere. So I don't even know what good docs looks like to know if I'm doing it right. And I think wonder if that sometimes is like the underlying root problem for why a lot of teams struggle because like no one's doing it enough yet. And they don't really want to like plant the flag and be wrong or something or or admit to not end up being used. Maybe isn't like another fear. It's like, well, I'll do this, but will anyone ever look at it? I don't know. So that could be like a deterrent in some way. Do you believe this is more of a process problem or a people problem? Well, one thing I could say is um, to answer the will it be used. So, so one thing I've seen not work well, we can say, is if the docs are not if the engineering docs are not contained in with the source code, I've seen them sometimes somewhere else, like in Confluence or some other external tool, that I can almost guarantee you isn't going to work because they're going to get stale. The, the docs need to participate in the same life cycle as the code. No one's going to go there to look. Like normally when people are searching like a command shift F or whatever to do a search within the project, they're staying within the source. So if you have the docs as part of the source, they're more likely to turn up there. So they they could be used. As for the, we don't have a, a good example, this goes to the fact that this isn't formally taught. So maybe people don't don't have the, the confidence to say, oh, what is this even supposed to look like? Whereas with code, there's any number of tutorials, you, you can always find a good example. I would say it it doesn't have to be perfect and the docs aren't carved in stone. Like like you can iterate on them as someone might learn something new about the integration and it's like, okay, great, go go ahead and add it. It it doesn't have to be the original person that wrote the doc is the owner forever. You, You can iterate and improve on them just like you do with your code and your tests. Hi there. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Maintainable. While you've been listening, has anyone crossed your mind who might be looking for help with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon, the producer of Maintainable Podcast, would love to meet them. In fact, we've got a pretty sweet referral bonus program set up. If you send someone our way and they sign up for Planet Argon services, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And your reward? We'll send you $1,000 just for connecting us to the right person. Sounds like a win-win for everyone. Head on over to planetargon.com forward slash referrals for more info. That's planetargon.com forward slash referrals. All right, let's get back to this week's episode. So for those listening who might feel like their team's documentation for their you know software projects are a little are underwhelming or subpar at the moment and they maybe feel like like it doesn't seem like anyone else, anyone else is stepping up to deal with the problem do you have any advice on how they can start strategies that you might advocate for well one way to think about this let's say you're the person who's been on the team the longest and um 
you have a lot of institutional knowledge in your head. Like you, you set up the pipeline, so you know how to deploy. You set up the Stripe integration, so you know how that works or, or whatever. Think about every time someone comes to ask you a question, like interrupts you in Slack or whatever. Those are topics that can go in the docs. You could even start as a as a frequently asked questions about Stripe doc or something like that. And just because you probably are already taking the time to type out your answers in Slack when people keep interrupting you. So an easy way to start would just be to literally copy paste those and put them in a doc and submit an ad hoc PR. You don't even need a a JIRA ticket just for like, oh, I'm just adding a, a little bit of docs here. Just get it started. And once you have it, it's easier to run with it because the next time someone asks you a question, you might realize, oh, that's not quite covered in the doc. So you could explain it to them and then ask that person, hey, if you're in the middle of working with Stripe and now you've learned something new, can you include this in your PR? So now that person is also taking a bit of ownership. So that's one way to get started is to just think about the the questions that you're constantly getting and start writing those down. Another thing you can think about is if you're the new person, like what kinds of things did you get stuck on setting up the project that you had to get on a, a call with someone? And those kinds of things can start, like like it could be just some missing setup instructions or you didn't know how to deploy, now you do. Okay, Ada, here's how you deploy to, to staging docs. You mentioned like a, having like creating an FAQ Something that I started experimenting with a couple of years ago was I kind of got into this idea that I was like, okay, we can, you can have some documentation, but I, I I felt like if I flipped it around and and started thinking about an FAQ for like like in like a how to interact with things or how to do things, I was like, how do I run the test suite? Like, what sort of questions do you think? Hopefully, your other peers are hopefully asking themselves. Like, it's almost a way of like we use we write tests. This is how we how do we run the tests on this thing? So having a lot of questions that I think people would should be asking themselves as they interact with, you know, they work on this project to help reinforce, like, how do I deploy this to staging? How do I deploy this? How do we, you know, how do we, you know, those sorts of like having very prescriptive that way, because it was rather than being like, do this, do this, do this. It was more like, how do I do this thing? Be the question. Here's the answer. It could be a snippet of code or a command that you need to run to do that. So it had very, very clear and it felt cleaner to me that I didn't feel like I need to explain, do this, do this, do this, like a bunch of sequence of steps. It was more like, here's how to do some very answer common questions that I think people are asking themselves, hopefully, inside their head, and that being a way to, to kind of translate that. It hasn't picked up a lot of steam with the rest of the team yet, but I thought it was I, I thought it was onto something for a little bit, and it like, helped me make it simpler to document when I was like, I'm just basically wanting to put in a bunch of commands, but rather than being like, do this command, do this command, do this command, like, how do I get C data in the system, run the, you know, the rake DB seeds or what, you know, whatever the commands are that you can do that, or use bin setup. Do you have any strong opinions about things like weird edge case things that impact you during like a project onboarding that were potentially more applicable to that person's local development environment and maybe not so much the code? Like, where do you find that distinction of like, is this useful to keep in the source code when it was actually more of an issue with like getting something running on your local machine? Where's that that line there for you? Yeah, well, I guess the the setup instructions you okay, for g- generally for everyone, this is going to work. What you could do, I think we did have this, like you could put a troubleshooting section, like, oh, if you're using 
Linux rather than Mac or this particular version, you might run into this weird issue. Here's an extra command you might have to run, but you put it as a separate troubleshooting section. So it doesn't create too much noise for like most people just following the steps. I like that. That's a, that's a good, that's a good suggestion there. Yeah. There's a couple of projects where Phil's very, very like, well, that seems like a really specific issue related to like Apple M1 hardware thing. And like now it's at the very top of like a setup instructions. And I'm like, I'm worried that like a intern or a junior person is going to copy and paste that thinking it's, they needed to do it. And then, then it just wrecks havoc on their machine or something. You can't undo some, some commands very easily or figure out what, what had happened. A couple of other things I wanted to, to speak with you about, you know, you talked a bit about testing and having good test coverage. What do you, what do you find to be most valuable? Is there a percentage you're hitting for any sort of metric you're aiming for? Like, how do you know as a team that you have enough, enough valuable code being tested? My thoughts on this have changed over the years. Earlier in my career, I spent a lot of time working in financial services where, um, being off even by a decimal or two in your calculations is, could translate into millions of dollars being wrong. So tests were a really big deal there. So I think I may have developed at that time some dogmatic ideas about testing, like you must have tests and you must have high test coverage. But later I, I did work on different kinds of projects that were more experimental or research where the exact specs weren't known. Like you you don't know exactly, is is this going to stick? Sometimes you just have to try something, especially if it's more visual, just see, does this even feel right? So it, it's not always the case that you have to have high test coverage or that you have to write your test first or something like that. I I think the test should be there if it's, if it's a product that is going to live on. If you realize, oh, th- this is a good idea. This is useful. This is solving problems for our customers. It's like at that point, you you really care about it continuing to work. Definitely at that time, you, sh- you should have the tests. The reason I, I don't, I'm not a stickler about a particular test coverage is for one thing that can be gamed. Like you can write a test that will exercise code, but not make any meaningful assertions. And your coverage reporter will faithfully report that you, you, you oh, 90% coverage. Good for you. But you haven't really done anything meaningful. So it, it's kind of a matter of using some judgment. Again, maybe part art, part science. I, one thing you could look at is if you're having a lot of regressions, like if every time you merge some new code or ship a new release, something that used to work now breaks. That's kind of a sign that there's some missing test coverage. And one one approach for that is every time you go in to fix a bug, make sure that you write a test that would break if that bug's not fixed, and then go ahead, go ahead and, and fix the bug. So that way you can kind of gradually improve your, your test coverage. Have you ever felt like you should delete tests in your project that were added at some point? Yeah, if they're not, well, for one thing, if it's for an area of the code that that's not really used and you're looking to do some cleanup, yeah, I mean, the tests are not carved in stone. They're, they're there to help the team and to tell the team this is how things are supposed to work. So if, if that's no longer the case for a certain suite of tests, uh, for sure, get rid of them if they're, if they're no longer helpful. Some tests can be brittle if they're verifying the implementation rather than the expected result. So that can be another case. If you find that every time you change some implementation detail, some test breaks, but nothing's really broken, 
that that's a sign. Like, is that test really helpful? Or, or maybe it should only be verifying the result, not mocking out every single thing that I'm calling inside there. That's interesting. Yeah, they. I, I, I asked that because I think sometimes, like similar documentation too. Sometimes, if like, I always wonder if it's a challenge for people to that are newcomers to projects to feel comfortable removing documentation or a test. And I think maybe because they just assume that they're there for a reason and like, well, I, I didn't interact with like, how do you know when documentation is stale? Like, I think that's a tricky thing to, to know sometimes. It's like if you're a new person on the team, like, oh, I tried this and it didn't seem to work. Maybe I'm doing something wrong or maybe and then you start to maybe have a little bit of lack of trust in the documentation being updated on a regular basis. So it can be kind of interesting to like how you work that into your process. I know that in, you know, in your article, which I'll link to in the show notes for everybody, you had touched on things maybe not to do, like have your PR process require certain things like documentation be included every time, or why, why do you believe that you wouldn't want to have that be a checklist item in, in your PR process? Well, for one thing, I've seen it not work well. So, so generally with engineers, they you can't just tell them what to do. Like if you say, oh, I have to write docs because my manager said I have to, you're, you're not going to get good results. Some people will do it. Like the, they'll just, oh, so this is some extra paperwork I need to submit. But if they don't buy into the benefits, you're, you're not going to get benefits out of the process. And then engineers might feel resentful, like, oh, why am, I just want to write, write my code. Why am I being forced to do this extra useless paperwork? So that's why I don't think it's helpful to have it like a, a checklist. For one thing, not every change that you make needs documentation. Maybe you're, you're doing a simple bug fix. Maybe you have really good unit test coverage and there's good descriptions on each test and that's that's clear enough. Yeah, I, I prefer to leave it to developers' judgment. It could even be the person that's doing the review might realize something's not obvious. Like let's say there's a new integration and then person who's reviewing the code is like, oh, this is broken for me. And then the person who wrote the code will say, oh yeah, I forgot. You need to sign up for an API key and add it to your hidden dot get ignored.env file. And and then the person re- reviewing might say, oh, um, could you add that to the doc so that the next pe- person that needs to work on this isn't going to get tripped up on that. So that's the way I prefer to see the, the docs come in rather than like a manager telling everyone, thou shalt write documentation or your PRs won't get approved. Hey, just a quick note to let you know about our new newsletter. It's called Maintainable Software Podcast Newsletter. It's new. It's a new newsletter. You should subscribe. If you go to maintainable.fm and look in the top navigation, you'll see a link to the newsletter. What are you going to get in the newsletter? Well, news about the podcast, new episodes, but more importantly, I'm going to assume that you haven't listened to all like 150-ish episodes that we've recorded, so I'm going to be periodically letting you know about some of my past favorite episodes and why I think you should listen to them. So head over to maintainable.fm and subscribe to the newsletter. Another thing I wanted to speak with you about was, you know, in preparation for this conversation, you had shared a story about a project that you were struggling with because, or that the project was struggling because there was maybe a few too many front-end technologies that were added over time. Could you tell us a little bit more about that experience and how you kind of, as a, you and your team kind of address that? 
Yeah, uh, on a project I worked on, there was um, an admin portion of the app that was only for internal use. And the app overall was built with Rails, but in the past, the admin area had been used for experimenting. So as a result, it had a mix of technologies for rendering the front end. So some pages were server-side rendered with Rails Haml templates. Some pages had AngularJS, some Ember, Elm, and React. I'm sure this must have seemed like a good idea at the time because it, it it's kind of fun to experiment. You know, there's always something shiny and new, especially in the front-end world. And it's fun to experiment and, and try these things out in a low-risk way. But the challenge with respect to maintaining this app is that then the team needed to know all these different frameworks anytime one of those pages had a bug or a new feature to be added. And since any given page wouldn't have to be maintained that often, that knowledge would be forgotten in between updates. So one of my first tasks when I joined that team was to remove some of that and replace it with either server-rendered Rails templates or React if the interactivity requirements warranted it. So we arrived at this decision by first discussing with the team, okay, what, what do we want the front-end tech to be on for, for the admin app? And since the customer-facing portion of this app was also Rails and React, making the admin consistent reduced the maintenance burden. That story resonates with me because we've done that a bunch on projects over the years, or we've inherited a lot of projects that have you know a plethora of JavaScript sprinkled in different areas of the application. And we've also seen it being really challenging when we inherit a project where there's a lack of a lot of, say, like end-to-end tests on like say an admin area like that, where you're like, okay, great. Well, we should maybe we should move all of this stuff to server-side stuff or and or combination of React for certain areas where there's a lot of need for that. But then it was always like a very challenging thing. Like how do we one persuade our client on like, we're not actually adding new features. We're not adding new functionality. Everything works right now. It's just that when you need to make changes, we just, we're having to work with too many different things that it's slowing us down or people don't, we're hiring people that have never seen that technology before. It's no longer in vogue. So it's an, it was an interesting challenge to be like, how do we upsell them on, or get them excited about the idea of spending money on cleaning up past experiments, you know, when the client was never like, please use a different technology every time we want to work on a new area of the admin. So do you think it's bad for teams to experiment with new things or how do you rein that in? Or do you feel like with, with wisdom over the years of having to deal with that, you start to be like, let's be mindful when we introduce new technologies. Like how do you make that distinction about, you know, as you're, as a team evaluates, like what should we be doing? What are we doing today? What should we be doing? Like, you know, a year from now when you're, when technology is kind of shifting quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely like fun and a good learning experience to experiment, but just having seen this in the past, I'm thinking maybe a spike on a a separate project. Like if if it's just for learning, maybe it's better to just build a small project and give developers time if, if the company has the budget and can, can make that work to give developers some some time to experiment with things, you know, take courses, learn new things, uh, build projects. But in terms of having the long-term maintainable project have a sprinkles of all these, it does create, I think, too much of a maintenance burden. In terms of, and if you are going to do it 
definitely first make sure that you have end-to-end test coverage in that area, because otherwise it, it's just really difficult to change anything there and wonder, oh, am I breaking something? Am I missing one case that might be the most important thing to the to the customer? So, Do you feel like it's a safe assumption that the developers were not, were like, oh, we can try this. It seems like a good idea. But like, if we try this new technology out on in this area of the application and it works well, I wonder if they were thinking, then we'll go back and retrofit the stuff we've already done. But when actually happened was that they didn't get the time reserved to do that. And then a year or two goes by and then they that idea happens again. And then you get it another one. And there's never that time to go back. And finally, you know, they hire you, come in. And then one of your jobs is to finally go take care of that backporting that, you know, using the, the newer technology on and, re, you know, removing the old thing. Do you think that probably is like likely what happened or is it just more of like, let's experiment it. We'll just keep a scope to this area or maybe we'll never know. It, it's possible perhaps with the, with the Elm. Yeah. It perhaps it's possible that the thought was to, you know, if it was a good experience to expand that out and then there's, other features that needed to be built or what other priorities came up and that never happened. But I, I don't know for sure, but that, that's, it's a plausible explanation. The life cycles and the stories that we don't know about the projects that we, you know, we, we come in contact to, you know, if it's been a project been around for a decade, you don't know all these things. So I always try to just assume the best of intentions by people. Like they weren't just hopefully just trying to make sure they can add another interesting new technology to their resume and just use this project as their guinea pig. But that could be very well, that could be the case as well. So it's, we'll never get to know sometimes. But a couple of quick last questions for you. Is there a non-software, non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to people that you work with? Yeah, uh, definitely. There's a book titled When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. The author is uh, Daniel Pink. This book covers the importance of timing in our daily lives and the research showing how timing can affect our productivity, decision-making, and overall well-being. So it turns out that certain times of day are better for certain types of tasks, and this is strongly influenced by our biological clocks rather than personal preference or habit. I gave a presentation on this book. It's titled uh, Time Hacking for Engineers. And I present some of the learnings from this book and how software engineers can apply it to organize their day for when they're working on analytical tasks versus creative tasks versus time of day when you shouldn't do anything important. And if you want to share it in the show notes, I can uh, share a link to that. Yeah, that, that would be great. I, I'd love to take a look at that or watch your uh, your talk on that. I'm out of curiosity, you know, without having read the book or knowing that. Can you tell me why? Like, it seems like it's like a Friday late afternoon that I get the most excited to work on some some project that no one's asking me to. But I'm like, I really want to focus on this all of a sudden. Is is it? Does that align with what you've learned through the books, or is I'm, am I actually just like a weird anomaly that? Maybe it's because my team's wrapped up their schedule and I can finally just do my own thing for a while. Well, according to the book, uh, people roughly have three different chronotypes, and that depends on when your midpoint of sleep is. But most people tend to be what's called third birds, which means that they're very good at analytical tasks. They have a lot of vigilance in the morning hours. If you're a lark, like then you're super early in the morning when you're going to be the most alert. But for most people, it's a little later in the morning. 
And then they tend to get uh, more of a burst of creativity later on in the afternoon, early evening. So the idea is that tasks that require a high degree of vigilance, like if you're doing a PR review or you're implementing a new feature, it would be good to do those in the morning. But sometimes there's things that require more creativity, like it could even be, and I'm not talking about drawing or art necessarily, but it could be you've been trying to fix a bug or, or think of a design for a card layout or something, and you've just been stuck on it. Sometimes if you wait till later in the afternoon or even in the early evening hours, when your mind is less vigilant, you'll think of something that you wouldn't have otherwise thought of. And that's a good time to work on those kinds of tasks. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm definitely looking forward to to watching your talk on that, and I'm gonna have to pick up that book. I've not, I've not read that one. We'll include links to those in the show notes for everybody as well. Where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations on software engineering online? Uh, well, best place is my blog. That's uh, DaniellaBaron.me, and uh, I'm also uh, Daniela M Baron on Twitter, um, Daniela Bar on GitHub. And Daniela Barron on LinkedIn. Awesome. I'll include links to all of those so people can get in touch with you on all the socials. And it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Daniela. Thank you so much for talking shop. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Maintainable.